All right, if you will turn with me and your Bibles to the book of Colossians. I don't even remember the last time we were in this book, and so I'll just say a few things while you're turning there. By the way, Colossians is after Ephesians and Philippians, uh, but before you get to the Thessalonian letters. So while you're, while you're turning there, remember that this letter is all about Jesus' sufficiency. The bottom line of Colossians is Jesus is enough. Because the danger to the church in Colossae and the danger to our church is that we want to add to him. Whether it's to to grow in maturity or to to hit that next level, we think maybe if there's, I've got to have this certain experience or I've got to learn these certain things or follow this pattern of religion. And what Paul is saying is, no, outside of Christ, nothing else is of any value. Your salvation, your sanctification, your growth, your glorification, it's all found in Jesus. So don't look outside of Jesus. And the last time we were in this letter, Paul gives this amazing picture of Jesus that Chris read earlier, it was on the screen, verses 15 through 23, where Paul presents Jesus as the Lord of creation, the Lord of the church, and then the reconciler of it all. Through his blood, through his death, he has reconciled not just individuals, but the entire world to himself. He has reconciled his church to himself. And so, having shown us that picture of Jesus, Paul now introduces himself. This church hadn't met him before. And so he's As we go through this, this first paragraph that we read, Paul's introducing his ministry in general, how the gospel has impacted Paul. And then the second paragraph we'll read is how Paul wants the gospel to impact the Colossians. Okay? So before we read, let me pray again. Father, as we come to your word, we thank you for it. We thank you that you have not left yourself without revelation, without a witness. But God, you have spoken to us here in these passages and through your spirit. And so, God, we pray that as we read and then as I preach, that you would make yourself known, that you would make your gospel known, that you would make your grace known, that you would transform us, leave us transformed, Lord, by our time in Colossians today. God, that we would be more fit to serve, uh, more apt to love you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, starting in verse 24, chapter 1, verse 24. Paul says, Now, now in light of all that I've said, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Let me pause. Paul is not saying that Jesus' death was not enough to purchase the church. What he's referring to is the suffering that the church must go through, the suffering that every believer goes through, and we'll talk more about that. But Paul is saying that he is filling up his part and more. Okay, So it's not that Jesus' death was not enough, but that there is still suffering before the end comes. And Paul's saying he is filling up in that suffering through his suffering. Sake of his body, that is the church, verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. What is that word? It is the mystery 
hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the fullness, excuse me, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will deceive you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Not, uh, not long after I had become a Christian, uh, someone gave me, or I probably bought it actually, this really awful devotional book. Uh, and the reason it was awful, I say that not to be mean, uh, but to say that it, it was deceptive. It said things about the Christian walk that aren't true, um, or at least it said them poorly so that, uh, that a new believer could be deceived. And what I, probably the main thing I remember about that book is this, is this story. Uh, the, the author tells the story of a man who dies and goes to heaven and is being given a tour of heaven by Peter, because Peter has nothing better to do than give tours of heaven. And they're walking through the warehouse district, because that's apparently in heaven, and right, they, he sees these huge warehouses. And he asks his, his guide, he asks Peter, what, what's in there, what's in those? And Peter's response is, oh, those are all the blessings that you could have had but didn't ask for. Come on. Nowhere in Scripture. Now, maybe he's trying to make the point that James makes, right, you don't have because you don't ask. Maybe. But the impression that that gives us of God is that he is withholding, that he's sitting on his throne, looking at the warehouses, looking down at me, looking at the warehouses, twiddling his thumbs, waiting for me to just push the right buttons or pull the right lever or ask the right way so that he can actually pour out his blessing. Paul tells us something completely different in this passage. Paul says that God has already poured out his blessing, that all of God's riches are ours in Christ already. That all the rich storehouses that God has for us, all the blessings that he has for us, already belong to us. They have come to us in Christ. They're not waiting on us in one sense. They are waiting on future grace, but we won't go down that road yet. But we have this impression, and I think this is what trips us up in the Christian life, is we view God as withholding stern, maybe mad at us, maybe waiting on us to perform the right actions. And Paul says, 
That's not the case. That's the main idea that we'll look at today, that all of the richness of God's glory is ours in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's see if we can see this in the ministry of Paul, the ministry of the mystery. Paul says lots of confusing things here, so I want to start at the core of what Paul says and maybe work our way out. All right. The core of Paul's message, the, po- the core of Paul's preaching is a person. Not a program, not a prescription, but a person. And that person's name is Jesus Christ. He says, look there at the end of verse 27. And when it came time to make the mystery known, that mystery is in fact Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, what in, what in the world does that mean? What is the, the hope of glory? What is glory? Right? When, when I think of glory, I think of, I think of things we've won for ourselves, things we want to win for ourselves on the battlefield, on, uh, in athletic competition, through accomplishment. That's usually what we think about when we think of glory. But that glory is fleeting. And usually it's won selfishly. But it points us to a deeper truth, a deeper fact that we, we hunger for something. We are, we are hungering for glory because God has put eternity in our hearts. We want to matter. We want to last. We want to be remembered. But apart from Christ, glory is fleeting. And Paul is preaching something completely different. Glory for Paul is nothing less than a fully restored relationship with God with no sinfulness, with no sickness, with no frustration. That is the glory that God offers. And the one place that that glory can be found is in Christ. That is what God has done to make glory possible. So if you were united in Christ, and that's, that's the hope, the hope that we long for, even apart from Jesus, that hope to matter, that hope for significance. Paul says we have it in Christ, and it's not something that we've won. It's not something that we've earned. It's not even something that we could fight for. Right? Paul told us earlier that we were hostile, enemies of God. And yet glory has been won for us. That's the gospel. The good news is that glory has been won for us. It's been fought for for us. It's been provided for us. And that's a much bigger picture of Jesus than I think we realize. Right? The, reason, the reason Paul's words to us are, are strange is because our, our understanding of Jesus is so small. Right? Our, our church culture here in the South we kind of see Jesus as this, right, this, this fire insurance. Right? I get to escape punishment if I have Jesus. And that is true. But it's not all the truth. It's not the total truth. Left out of that are all of the riches that God promises, all of the blessings that God promises for those who love him. Most of all, a relationship with Him. I mean, let's be honest. When you hear, and this is the way it's sometimes preached, when you hear, I won't 
die if I have Jesus, when you kind of hear that fire insurance message of Christ, does that change you? Does that, does that make you, does that, does that cause you to love God? Or does that just really fit in a neat religious box so that you can say, well, I've got my fire insurance and now I'm going to go on living my life and the preacher's going to tell me every week how I'm supposed to keep living for Jesus, but I've never really been given a big Jesus. I've been given a small Jesus who just kind of gives me, who, who just kind of sets me free from death. He is that, but he's so much more. God melts our hearts with his grace. He melts our hardened hearts with his grace so that, so that we are offered, we, wrath-deserving sinners, are offered a seat at the table. That's the, that's the power of the cross. That's the gospel. That's the glory that Paul preaches. Paul's message is also a mystery. What does that mean? Well, mystery in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, does not mean something puzzling, something hard, something that we have to figure out. The word actually comes from old Jewish thought, right? The, the mystery is actually God's secret rescue plan. I, didn't, I did put it up there, right? If you want, I continue to refer to this book, the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's good. Um, point, your, point your child to Jesus. And in there, she uses that word, God's secret rescue plan, something that God has hidden for the ages and generations, but now made known. See, what, what the Jews thought would happen is that at some point, that, that we are currently in the present age, and there was the age to come. And at some point, God was going to intervene in the present age. He was going to intervene, and he was going to rescue his people. They didn't know how it was going to happen, but that's what they believed. Well, Paul takes that, and he runs with it, because Jesus has transformed that whole thing, right? Now the, the age to come has entered into the present age by Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension to heaven. And so what Paul's saying is that mystery that you were wondering about for thousands of years, it's here in a person. It's Jesus, okay? The mystery that God had hidden, he has now revealed. And the really good news is it's not for some elite group of people. It's not for simply righteous Jews. It's for all the nations. Those are the glorious riches of God's mystery. That salvation, that rescue has been offered not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, to people like you and me. And this also helps us make sense of Paul's suffering when he talks about suffering. This is also an old Jewish idea that, coming from Daniel 12.1, 12, that right before God intervened, his people were going to undergo intense suffering. Well, that's happening. Because now we live between the ages in that period of suffering that Paul is talking about when he says, I'm filling up. In my flesh, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions through my suffering, that's, that's what he's talking about. That there's an allot amount of suffering that must take place before the Lord returns. Now, Jesus promised us no less, right? John 15, if they persecuted the Messiah, if they persecute me, they will persecute you. 
And so when we suffer, we are actually following our Savior. We follow our suffering Lord. That's one reason why we suffer, to be identified with Him. That's why Paul can say he's filling up for the church what is lacking in Christ's affliction. But Jesus and Paul also say that suffering is a sign of the new life to come. If you go to Matthew 24 or Mark 13 or Romans 8, suffering is referred to as birth pains. Now, obviously I don't have first-hand experience of those, but labor is hard. Labor is agonizing. Labor is excruciating. But Lord willing, it brings forth life. And that's exactly what, what is happening to us when we suffer. Whether that suffering is external persecution that is suffered here in the United States and, of course, around the world. I read only recently of Christians in Egypt who are now marginalized to the outside of society. They are basically left outside the camp. They have to, they have to live in garbage dump cities outside of the, the capital city of Cairo. That's where Christians are relegated to. And that's not uncommon. We can be uh, persecuted here. Persecuted not yet by government, though that's possible. Persecuted by the enemy. Right? External persecution or internal suffering. When you, when you wrestle with sin, when you strive against the flesh, that's suffering. And all of those things are birth pains. All of those things are given to you as a reminder, given to me as a reminder that this world is not our home, that there is so much more for us. Suffering is meant to remind us of our future and to separate us from sin. And that's why Paul can rejoice. Paul rejoices in his suffering not in spite of it, but in it, because he knows that God's purpose is coming to fruition. We're going to skip down a little bit. Paul's ministry is a struggle for perfection. Look at verses 28 and 29. Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Notice that Paul doesn't stop at conversion. Paul is not just simply interested in decisions for Christ, whatever that may mean. Conversion's important, but Paul doesn't stop there. He pushes farther. He warns, he admonishes, he teaches so that, so that his people will reach perfection. And how does he do that? He says, for this, <clears throat> for this I toil, struggling... Now, when you read those words, toil and struggle, think Olympic athletes, right? Those words are meant to convey really hard work. Think blood, sweat, tears, all, in the sake, all for the sake of a prize. And Paul says he does that. He works with all of Jesus' energy that works within him, right? So Paul is at work, but Christ is at work within him. For who? Who is Paul struggling for? Well, and that's where we look at his ministry to the Colossians. <clears throat> I'll make this quick. Paul 
Paul basically says this. I struggle for you because I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be knit together in love. I want you to have full assurance. I want you to have that assurance that cannot be shaken. Because false teachers are coming. And they want to shake your assurance. They're, they're going to offer you wisdom and knowledge outside of Christ, beyond Christ. And they're going to say that that's what will make you whole. That's what will make you complete. That's what will mature you. And Paul says, I want your church to be so rooted and established in the gospel that, you're, that you love each other and that you possess a deep knowledge of the things of Christ. Such a deep knowledge of God for this reason, so that you won't be deceived. And we are so easily deceived. We can see from verse 5 that the church has not been hit yet. Right? He says, I rejoice to see your good order and your firmness. Those are military terms. They're ready for battle. And the battle is coming in the verses ahead. He's going to address that. They haven't been hit yet, but he wants them to make sure that they are not deceived. And look how he, look how he tries to convince them. Look at the, 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 the language that he uses in verse 2. He calls it the richness of full assurance. In verse 3, he says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are stored up in Christ. He's the vault. He's the storehouse. He says, you have, in 127, you have the rich glory of Christ in you. What those false teachers are offering you is a fraud. And his word to us is the same today. What is offered outside of Christ to us is a fraud. They don't have the mystery. They don't have the maturity. They don't have the wisdom. They don't have the knowledge. Christ has all of that and has given it to his church. So dive into him. Right? That's, I'm thankful to N.T. Wright for pointing that out to me. There's a, a challenge in there. Paul's, just, Paul's not only saying, you have all of these riches, but he's challenging them to dive into those riches, to experience them. Who remembers Scrooge McDuck? DuckTales, anybody? Come on. There we go. Yeah. Right. Scrooge has this storehouse, this huge vault up on a hill, and it's full of money. And what does he like to do? He likes to swim in it. Right? There's a diving board over the, over the pit. He jumps off the diving board and dives into it, and he swims in his money. Now, we know that would hurt. Right? That's not really possible. But that, think of that when you think of, of, of all the riches of Christ that are available to you. Paul is saying, dive in. Get to know Jesus. See and savor Jesus. You want to be ready for the fight? See Jesus. You want to be comforted in suffering? Go to Jesus. You want to stand firm in the day of testing? Go to Jesus. You've got to know Him in order to stand firm. You've got to experience all that Christ has to offer. How do you do that? Very practically, by spending time with Him. Right? You, can't, you can't be friends with somebody you don't spend time with. Let's apply ourselves to continuing to to learn the gospel, to learn the word, to know Jesus, and apply the gospel in every area of life. Parents, point your children to Jesus, not to religion. Teach them to worship the Lord and not all of the outward periphery. 
It matters. But there's an invitation there for those of you who don't know Christ as well. The treasure is yours. The treasure is yours for free if you'll have it. It costs you nothing. It costs Jesus everything. All you have to do is trust and rest in Christ and all that fullness, all that wholeness, all the riches that you've been looking for will be yours. That's what Paul offers. That's what God offers. Those are the rich, the rich glories of God in Christ. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you that of your grace, of your sheer grace, you have provided for us all of your riches. All we need and more, beyond all that we could ask or imagine, belongs to us in Christ. So that when we face the evil one, when we face suffering, Lord, when we talk to our friends about our Savior, God, would you give us such a big picture of yourself. Help us to see, help us to understand, help us to savor all that you are for us in Christ so that we will be free and so that we will gladly invite others to that freedom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.